at one point, you know, it was all about those high-speed lifts and the fancy lodges and the sushi and all that. Now it's sort of like people are really coming around saying, you know, we love the authentic places. We love real deal. We love the fact that someone's really trying to make a livelihood out of this, that this isn't just one big, huge conglomerate. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast is focused on the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com where all Storm Skiing podcasts and editorial content live. We're also on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Episode 2, Danielle and Laszlo Vete, owners of Platykill Mountain. Do you ski the Catskills? If you have, if you do, what do you think about when you think about the Catskills? Hunter, Wyndham, Bel Air, crowds, ice, maybe all those things. What about Platykill? Platy is the fourth ski area in the Catskills, and it's the one that a lot fewer people know about. It's the last family-run mountain in the Catskills. It's the ski area you see from the top of Deer Run at Bel Air when you come around that first big curve, and you see this hump in the distance across the valley, and it's just these vertical shafts of white streaking down the mountain, and you say, what's that? That's Platykill. It's owned by a married couple, Danielle and Laszlo Vete. They bought the mountain in 1993. They were instructors there before that, and they saved the place. That is not an overstatement. They saved it, and they did it the old-fashioned way. They built the place through hard work, with a lot of love, a lot of common sense, a lot of frugality. Today, it is thriving. A few things I want you to know about Platykill before you listen to this interview. Number one, ignore the stats. Platykill may be the smallest ski area in the Catskills by vertical drop, by trail count, by number of lifts. doesn't matter. It's a fantastic mountain. It is an expert's mountain. They have stuff there that's as steep as anything in New York State. Great bump skiing, good glade skiing. Also, an awesome family mountain. My 11-year-old daughter loves the place. They have lots of what she calls secret trails, uh, which are really their network of bike trails that slope through the woods. Lots of good green stuff there. And the place is almost never crowded. Number two, the place has atmosphere. Platykill is a place people want to be. You go there and you immediately sense the community that's been built around this place. That is an intangible thing. You cannot manufacture that. Platykill has it and has a lot of it. Number three, Platykill is in a dogfight with the other Catskill ski areas. It is the farthest from major highways. It is the least well-funded, the least well-known. So it's in a dogfight, and it's like not a fair dogfight. It's like Platykill's flying a biplane, and Bel Air and Wyndham are in F-16s, and Hunter's flying whatever those alien ships were in Independence Day. And it's not because Platykill is any worse of a mountain. It actually gets more snow than any of its rivals. It just doesn't have the mothership to come dump money on it. It doesn't have Orta. It doesn't have New York State like Bel Air does. It doesn't have an investment group like Wyndham does. It doesn't have Vail like Hunter does. It's just two people who own a mountain, who are making the best of it, who are making a run for it, and they're doing a damn good job. Danielle and Laszlo were nice enough to give me some time and share their story with me. It's an awesome story. You're about to hear it. Let's do it. My guests today are the owners of Platykill Mountain, the only family-owned and operated ski area in New York's Catskills. After working on the mountain as instructors, they purchased it together in 1993. Danielle and Laszlo Vete are my guests. Danielle, Laszlo, thank you so much for joining us. 
Our pleasure. Thank or you so my much. My pleasure. I don't want to speak for Danielle. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart, for having us. Well, you know, the mountain has such an interesting story, but I think your story is fascinating as well. It, it's so interesting that you met on the mountain and then went on to own it. Uh, can you take us back through how you met in the role that the mountain played in your relationship? Wow. Well, um, Danielle can elaborate um, on a lot of this, but uh, I'm sure she'll agree. We met here as kids. Um, the Both our families skied here. We were weekend warriors, my family from Jersey, her family from the Hartford, Connecticut area. And uh, they ended up being Catskill skiers because Danielle's parents originally lived in Manhattan. So they were making the trip up here to the Catskills and had already owned a small cabin up here. So when they moved to Hartford, um, they continued to vacation and ski here in the Catskills and, and didn't sell their place for the easier, accessible Vermont from the Hartford area. They just traveled west every weekend instead of going north. Um, and we grew up here as kids. Like literal kids? like L- Literally kids. Literally <laughs> kids. I-, I was skiing here since I was seven. And um, Danielle, you pretty much were born and bred right on the mountain, right? <laughs> well, on-, on weekends. For the most part, yes. <laughs> you know? I mean, definitely from about the same age on, I would say about eight, ten years old, my family was weekend warriors here at Platakil, as Les mentioned, coming up on the weekends. And uh, that's exactly how me and Laszlo met. Laszlo was uh, originally a ski instructor here for several years. Um, Then he became ski school director. And while he was ski school director, I became a ski instructor. And that's kind of how we sort of met. And connected, yeah. And and connected, if you will, at that stage in life. And, um, yeah, and we kind of were in that capacity for a while. And then um, Laszlo decided one day when the mountain went up for bankruptcy that he was going to take a big risk. <laughs> and um Les, you can say a little more specifically. You're laughing, you're laughing. <laughs> and here we are. Need we really say too much more? It was let, a big let, risk. let me let me elaborate. Uh she was a, my very serious girlfriend in nineteen ninety three and I said, okay. Hey, you know, it looks like we're gonna have a future together. If I give it a go and, and try to buy this place, are you gonna dump me or are you gonna move up here with me? <laughs> And she said, ah, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. You know, we could always go back to uh, our real lives um, if if, it, if nothing works. And, you know, everything seems to be working because 26 years later, we're still here. Yeah, it's it's a it looks like you took a right. You made the right move there, Laszlo. So at the time you were actually traveling up on the weekends. Is that right? To work as ski instructors? Traveling up on the weekends every weekend. And I ran the ski school up here for nine years. Um, wow. So. I kind of saw the writing on the wall years before that and, uh, you know, saw that something's happening and and started reaching out to the banks and the, the, you know, people involved with the mountain saying, hey, if something goes south here, you know, I'd be interested in taking it over. Um, Would I get your support? And uh, they all were emphatic. So I started writing a business plan. And... uh, you know, Danielle and I were editing it together, and um, you know, they they liked the banks liked the plan. You know, so I was the uh, the high bidder. I think I was the only bidder uh, at the time that met the minimum bid, and uh, you know, here I am, 26 years later. <laughs> 
when you took the area over, it didn't have a lot of snowmaking, didn't have a lot of grooming. Uh, 26 years later, it's thriving. You're, you stayed open until April this year and, and you do a lot of years. Uh, take us through the evolution of the mountain. What did it, what did Platico look like when you bought it? And, and take us through that evolution of how it got where it is today. Well, in the mid eighties, um, lots of resorts were trying to develop their mountains. Um, they were trying to put slopeside condos and slopeside homes on their on their mountains because you know skiing back then had a different uh, angle to it. It was a real sexy sport. Everybody wanted the deck overlooking the slopes with the hot tub on it and apres ski right on the edges of the slope. You know, ski up, have a cocktail, hop in the hot tub. You know, have a good time. And everybody was trying to follow that craze and, and make money on it, clearly. Um, the problem is here, they also pursued that real estate growth or, or tried to implement that growth model with real estate, but failed to see the need for expanding and investing in snowmaking. And there were years that the mountain couldn't even open or barely opened on natural snow. So basically the real estate development went went bankrupt. It went south. That's what bankrupted the business um, because there was a there was huge debt on it. Yeah. And um you know, they couldn't meet that debt service. So when I took over we we saw the need uh to invest every available dollar into snowmaking and it was the uh, snowmaking 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 was our motto you know that's all that mattered you know nothing happens unless you sell a lift ticket and in order to sell a lift ticket you need snow and then you need the reliable uh, lifts and then you need good grooming um, so those were always our three priorities um, as it should have been you know in the past before real estate so we kind of resolved ourselves to the fact that we are not developers we're not going to even attempt to develop the mountain because that's not our area of expertise we became really good at at ski areas at managing and operating a ski area and uh and doing it with a farmer mentality you know uh snow is our crop and uh, there's years we're going to have a good crop season and a bad crop season, and we have to be prepared for it. So, you know, we we implemented a very sound, conservative financial model so that we wouldn't get into trouble with, with heavy debt. And, uh, you know, we only spent what we made, but we made it a, made it a challenge and made it a, a point to try to add snowmaking to one trail at least every summer. And uh, beginning with the 1995 ski season, um, that's what we did. Because in 1993, when I took over, that would have been the 93-94 ski season, we had record snowfalls, and it, and it seemed like it snowed mm -hmm. every day. So mm -hmm. we decided to change the operating model of Platico, which was only operating as a weekend area, to a seven-day operation. And that year, we operated seven continuous days for 90 days. And then we operated another mm, 30 days uh, on weekends only at the end of the season. But uh, the next ski season, 94-95, um, if, you, if you look up December, February 5th, February 5th of 1995, I believe it was, or right around there, Platico made the cover of the New York Times because the entire Northeast was suffering with a lack of snow. 
and I still hadn't started doing anything with snowmaking, thinking that it just mm-hmm. snows a ton in the Catskills. Mm-hmm. So that year, it didn't snow until February, and we didn't get open until, geez, it was it was right around February 7th or 8th that year. And, and that year, we thought everything was going to fall apart, you know. And um, that's when we, we realized we have to invest in snowmaking. And, uh, you know, due to some very generous um, investors that, that I knew that skied here, we were able to do our first trail of snowmaking. And um, we started that, that effort from 1995 on. And uh, here we are 24 years later after that year, and we've got snow on it, snowmaking on at least 24 trails. And, um, you know, we're continuing in that vein. There's, there's years where we just can't do it. Um, if there's a, a poor snow year, regardless of the amount of snow you have on the slopes, the skiers just don't get in the mood to go skiing if there's no snow in their backyards. They, right. they, they don't have that, that California mentality where, you know, down in Los Angeles, you've got a beach weather, but up in the mountains, you've got ski weather. Um, so if there's no snow in the cities, the volume of skiers is basically limited to the uh, season pass holders and the, and the regular skiers who are very knowledgeable in the ski business. And mm-hmm. there's bad years where we just don't invest in snowmaking because we really can't, and we don't want to go heavily into debt. Right. But we're still onward and upward. There's There's other trails we can make snow on by – using real creative strategies, farmer mentality strategies, you know, stretching hose and moving guns around and stockpiling snow and pushing it around. Um, so, you know, we're making snow on probably 26 to 27 of our 38 trails. And that's where we are today. And uh, we're still working on snowmaking. You know, our goal is 38 trails by 38 years. <laughs> <laughs> You seem on pace to make it. How, how big was the learning curve, right? So you're you're a ski instructor heading to ski school. Obviously, a great familiarity and love with the sport. You know, you're not real estate investors, but you're probably also not at the time snowmakers or grooming experts. What was the learning curve like with not only learning how to do it, but you know how to move the equipment around and, and the best way to position it on the mountain? Well, the learning curve was tough because in the first year we didn't think we could make any mistakes, um, but that being said, I've got a very mechanical mind, and um, I, I understood everything, and I, I partnered up with a, an amazing uh, local mechanic who owned a garage, who is now my operations manager. His nickname is Mountain Macker, so he's a key player in this thing. And, you know, he could fix and repair and make anything work, you know. Um, he knows you, you, you got to do whatever it takes. And, and those have been the three words we've lived by for 26 years, whatever it takes, you know, you can't be afraid to get your hands dirty. So the learning curve was difficult, but it was very quick. Um, you know, we were learning how to do everything with our own hands in house, um, because we had to, you know, financially, you just had to, you couldn't. You couldn't just spend, spend, spend. You know, we didn't have a big corporation behind us that could just, you know, throw money at problems and fix them. You know, we and I think that's why we can work. say where why we are where we are. You talk about you know taking taking us down, taking it down the course of you know where we started and where we are now. I think it's because of a lot of mountain ingenuity. Um, we we really were 
really frugal and frivolous with how he spent money and started out with next to nothing and bought things that really didn't work great, but without taking on that debt of anything brand new. Had we said, okay, now we're running a scheme out, and so we have to buy snow guns and we have to buy groomers, had we gone out and just bought that stuff and had debt that we had to pay off and had lean snow years, we would have definitely found ourselves perhaps not here right now. But right. having having um, each year like invested into the business and whatever we made put back into the business and taking that old junky snow cap that we had and see if – we could trade it in for parts and get something just that little bit better. And then the next year we had a little something better. And then the next couple of years later, let's put a little bit more into grooming. And our grooming was just a little bit better. And with each year, we kind of grew the business that way from snowmaking and grooming by continually investing back into the business and keep upgrading that equipment so that one day our equipment isn't, is now putting out a way better product. And, and putting up a chairlift in 2002. Right. To replace that old T-bar, right? To replace the T-bar, yep. The longest, highest, continuous vertical rise T-bar that was left operating in the country in 2001. That had to be a workout. It was a workout. <laughs> it, it took just as much effort to go up it as it did to come down. Snowboarders yeah. hated it. Yeah. They looked at it like, what the heck is that and how the heck am I supposed to ride that? <laughs> Were they successful or did you get a lot of uh, mid-lift line bails? Oh, we did. We had a lot of those. <laughs> it was quite entertaining. Sometimes we put yeah, a video was, camera out there just to record it. <laughs> yeah, when I was researching this, I you know I looked back at Platico a little and saw that that used to be a T bar. I was like, my lord, that is a steep. I, did it follow the same line? Because that is steep. Like right yeah, now, par- parallel to the double lift. Yep, the double lift wow. we put in. <laughs> Which, with the rise of snowboarding, became a real challenge. If you could think about it, in the olden days when they had T bars and two skiers would share it, and you kind of leverage yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was kind of okay. You could sort of make it work. Um, but with the rise of snowboarding, it really became a huge challenge that you know people just would struggle to access that right. side of the mountain with those trails because they just couldn't couldn't hack that. Not not to mention it was designed to uh, operate at 900 people per hour, and right. we were lucky if we could run it good enough to operate it at 600 people per hour. So uh-huh. you can imagine the lift lines <laughs> compared to a yeah. lift that. A ski lift, a chairlift that runs at 1,200 people per hour for a double and 1,800 people per hour on a on a triple. <laughs> Over these 26 years, a lot of your neighbors have disappeared. Uh, Bobcat, Cortina, High Mountain, I believe, shut down either just before or or right the next year. It's right around the same time. Um, is that your secret? The the reinvestment into the mountain, the frugality, uh, is that what it took? Because you're surrounded by a lot of very well-funded giant mountains, right? Yeah, so it's totally staying away from very expensive debt. Debt. No matter how Mm -hmm. cheap you get it, it's still expensive. Yep. And uh, meeting that debt service, you know, the banks just have no patience whatsoever. So Mm -hmm. anytime we needed money, we turned to private sources of funds, you know, um, investors who we borrowed money from, and who were very, very patient, you know. Um, they were they were our angels, so to speak. <laughs> that double chair, that actually came over from Bel Air, right? Yes, it did. So buying the used chair, that's another example of how do you make this work, is refurbishing that and taking a lower cost way instead of going into huge debt. In fact, it took us four years to refurbish it because, you know, we, we were only able to throw so much money at it every year. 
So, you know, one year it would be sandblasting, uh, priming and painting. The next year was all the nuts and bolts and, and bushings and shiv wheels. Uh, the next year it was buying a new cable for it and a new gearbox for it, you know. And then everything came together. And then finally in 2001, oh, 2001, we did the concrete um, mm-hmm. for the footers and for all the towers and the base terminals. And then the following year, in in the 2001-2002 season, that year we physically put the lift up, hiring a helicopter. We had to balance out the the money we spent on it, you know. Mm-hmm. Couldn't do it all at once. Do you think that you found a formula that could have saved Bobcat, that could have saved some of these other little areas? Or, or is there something else unique about Platykel, like some secret ingredient that on top of this management uh, that made it survive, the community, the the spirit behind the place? This model would work anywhere, anywhere. Uh, I'm a frequent uh, I'm a frequent outspoken critic of Bel Air and the state run ski areas mm-hmm. and I've I've frequently stated that if they were leased out to private operators as any state recreational facility should, I could operate them literally at fifty percent of their annual budgets. Mm-hmm. Um, because that, that model will work anywhere. I think it's just a challenge. It's a real challenge to run a small mountain the way that we've run it. So I think that it takes like a certain type of person that would have had to have hung in there um, to have to run a ski mountain sort of like how we did, um, you know, when you're a small guy. It's really easy to get lured into, you know, saying, let's okay, let's spend, you know, $25,000 on this new groomer and then realize that you've got payments you've got to make on it and you've got a bad snow year. And it's so intensive of, like, what do you buy first? You know, the grooming, the snowmaking, the lifts, mm. infrastructure. It's, like, such a challenge to figure out what comes first. It's, like, it's start a- before the horse. <laughs> it's sort of like... Chicken and the egg. <laughs> do you feel like you're getting better at it as, you know, going into your third decade? We're getting better at it, I think, because it's gotten just that little bit easier because, you know, although we still buy stuff used, it's maybe not as used. So the breaking down is like a little less and the challenges are a little less, you know, with each individual thing that we're, you know, dealing with because there's so many facets of the business. But, um, you know, I think now in this day and age, since you mentioned so many of those mountains have closed, you know, it's it's helping Platykill and small independent mountains like us to shine that much more. Um, there's only there's not very many of us left, and I think that the the skiing clientele is kind of coming full circle and saying, well, as at one point, you know, it was all about those high speed lifts and the fancy lodges and the sushi and all that. Now it's sort of like people are really coming around saying, you know, we love the authentic places, we love real deal, we love. The fact that someone's really trying to make a livelihood out of this, that this isn't just one big, huge conglomerate. Yeah, Platykill really has a, an incredibly passionate following. It is as intense as any in the Northeast. People are passionate. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they just love the fact that, you know, like we just said, I mean, there's just so many mountains that are being bought up. By, by large corporations that just these these smaller mountains like this privately owned family operated are just so few and far between that you know people recognize that and you know they appreciate the fact that like the lift ticket is the price that it is because 
the money that they pay on that ticket is going to go back into like uh, into a business where they're going to put the money back into the business and continue to offer a great product versus saying, oh, we're going to price the lift ticket at this and it's going to be across, you know, all 15 resorts that we own and it's just become way more, um, you know, n- not so unique. It's become a little bit more, you know. Stuart, I also general. think it's a a matter of, being that we are a skiing family and we've raised our family here, we're meeting expectations. We are we, we feel and we understand those expectations because we are active participants. We're not absentee landlords. So mm-hmm. we totally connect and feel um, uh, the, the same vibe that our guests feel. And, uh, and we take everything to heart. So we make sure if there's an issue, we fix it, we address it. And... Mm-hmm. There's a there's a there's a market out there. There's a niche out there that truly appreciates that and loves the way they feel when they come here. Something that can't be matched by the corporate-owned ski resorts anymore. Um, they're 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 getting more and more like they're stamped out of a out of a cookie mold. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it, it, they're they're it's all the same, and they're getting very expensive. You know, part of that expectation is the cost of skiing. Um, you know, we, we feel it, we understand it, and we don't want to alienate anybody from it, you know. So I, I think we've developed a very, very passionate following that truly enjoys what we're doing here. And, and you know, they, they see that we're working hard at it and, and really, really care about it. Yeah, you see the – I've seen some great profiles recently. There's the Powder Magazine and the New York Times. And – kind of positioning Platykill as the David against Goliath, but it, the mountain really seems to be doing really well. Uh, the mountain renting strategy seems to be working. Uh, everyone I talk to loves the place. Um, is, is that just perception or is that, or is your mountain really on the upswing? Well, we're on an upswing, but you know, we've also, you know, have a theory that Rome, I mean, we believe in the theory that Rome wasn't built in, in a day, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's on an upswing, uh, to the degree that we can grow the business, you know, we we can't invest millions of dollars every year into the mountains. So our growth is not going to grow as fast either. Um, but I think I think that I truly believe that people are seeing that growth in a small way, and they're seeing we're living up to guest expectations. We're changing uh, a handle toe in a learning center to a carpet lift. It took a while. We had to wait until the big resorts who had the carpet lifts sold their used carpet lifts. We could never purchase a new carpet lift. But now Platykill has a carpet lift in their learning center. For this upcoming winter, we're doing the same thing for our snow tubing park. Um, so, again, you know, being able to live up to these guest expectations and people who have never visited before don't know it as any different. So they come to Platykill now because the word of mouth is out there, the vibe, the the whole experience. People can talk about it in such a positive way, not, oh, Platykill's a great, like, mom-and-pop mountain to go to, you know, when it snows. It's a little rough, but, you know, no, that, that's not it anymore. People are coming mm-hmm. and able to tell their friends, you know you're going to love it there and that's and then they come and then we're like just living up to that expectation they don't know it as any different it's just like we're putting out a better product snow wise we're grooming that product better we are have better lifts we have the lifts they're expecting so it's sort of like i guess we're kind of really growing things now because you know people are telling friends and word of mouth is out there social media has been huge for us um and people are 
coming here for a first time and then we're living up to expectations and they're coming back and they're telling their friends. So it's it's sort of it's sort of catching now. And and we're not growing by market share. You mm-hmm. know, we're growing by people, individual people mm-hmm. telling their friends. Right. <laughs> there seems to be this underlying uh secret um vibe going around where the regulars don't want anybody to tell anybody. They don't want us to get crowded. They don't want to stand on lift lines and things like that. Um, but we, we in turn say, let's grow by one. Just tell one of your friends, you know, and let that person tell another friend. Um, like the old Vidal Sassoon commercials. She tells two friends and she tells two friends. You know, we're growing it like that. And it may appear like we're on a major upswing, and we are, but we're we're on a major upswing in our own right. You know, people see the improvements. You know, they see us renovating parts of our base lodge, but we can't spend the money on building a new base lodge. Um, right. They they see us improving and putting in a new carpet lift. Um, it's a used carpet lift that's you know ten years old, fifteen years old that came out of a big ski resort that upgraded and. They just wanted the other one gone, so we got it for pennies on the dollar. Um, or, or buying stuff from closed ski resorts. We've done that too. So, and and you know, we renovate it, we refurb it, we make it work. Um, we've we've also got a great team. You know, our team is is awesome. You know, without them, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere we are. We're only as good as our team is. Yeah, don't touch the lodge, Lazlo. I love that place. It feels so cool walking in there. We just know that it is swelling at the seams at times. You know, we we, we do want to put improvements on it. We want to make it larger, but we don't want a big steel building either. You know, we don't want it to become very cold and, and, you know. And we always have to be aware that ultimately we are snow farmers. I mean, that's critically Mm -hmm. what we are. Um, it, It starts with snow. So if you get a bad snow year, if you don't have the weather, you know, you're relying now so much on snowmaking to put the base down. But even that can be challenging at times. So, you know, without snow, we got nothing. So we, you know, we just really have to be prepared for whatever may come next. And, again, that's limiting that debt, that debt. So as much mm-hmm. as it may be great to expand the lodge, that's all wonderful. But if the next two winters we don't have great snow, so that's just such a huge risk for such a small business. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the really creative ways that you've helped the mountain grow or, or let the mountain grow is with this very liberal trail management philosophy where the, the locals come in and they thin out the glades and open up some new terrain. Um, can you talk a little bit about that trail management philosophy and how that's helped to fuel the mountain's attitude and its atmosphere? Again, it's expectations. You know, this is this is what we love to do. We love to ski the glades. We love to ski the woods. We're, we're very lucky in our uh, geographic location, being on the western edge of the Catskill Mountains. Not only are we getting hit with great nor'easters when it's cold enough, but they're being supplemented by lake effect snow. So everybody wants to go in the woods. You know, a snowfall at our nearest neighbor may be three inches, and we could end up with a foot of snow here. Um, that's how our powder days philosophy was was uh, developed or created um, after we went to a three-day operation. But uh, we we just decided let the skiers build the trails that they want to ski, you know. And it's more for our regular clientele, um, mm-hmm. the the casual skiers, you know, 
don't know it. They get to enjoy it when they're here. But uh, the, the regular clientele is, is very much involved, and, and they want to be involved. They're volunteering all the time to help out yeah. with whatever they can help with. I, I've, got, I've got very good friends now who are very good friends that I've, I've gotten to know over the years who want to start an ambassadorship program here. And, and they, they, don't, they want nothing for it. They just want to show other people what they love about this mountain. Like a mountain tour program, like meet here at 11 for a... For exactly, a exactly. Or just wait at the top of the mountain for a couple mm-hmm. of hours, you know, looking for the, the yeah. new skiing family and uh, talking to them a little bit, riding the lift with them, showing them the easy trails down, et cetera, et cetera. And do you organize those those trail cutting events or, or, do your, or do your regulars just go up there with a chainsaw and have at it? No, 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 no. We it, it, It's somewhat organized, but... It's not really organized by us. It's more organized by it was it was first started by some of our passionate skiers. Um and then we kind of took it over and our ski school director has run it the last few years and um literally they just choose a different section of the mountain that they're going to clear out and they make, you know, 40 to 60 guys show up, guys and gals show up and and they'll literally make two lines down the hill the first line is the uh the attack line they're the ones cutting and trimming and thinning things out and then the second row of people behind them are are lined up all across this gladed area and they're the ones piling up all the brush Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and if it's uh if it's near a, a ski trail we'll go through and chip it up at the end of the summer you know before ski season starts if it's in the woods they'll pile it up out of the way so that it's not in the way when you're skiing the powder and and it's worked great. And every year it's just another section. It's almost like our snowmaking philosophy. Every year we add a, a section of glades because the, the mountain's been thinned out a tremendous amount already by the mountain biking business that we started. All those mountain bike trails are great to ski, so now we're just kind of building on that with the glades. And you don't have a ton of glades marked on the trail map. Is, the, is that intentional? Or are you just kind of letting those for the people who can find them? Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a border-to-border philosophy, you know, mm-hmm. ski wherever you like, don't ski uh, don't ski alone, and, right. um, you know, it's it's pretty much promoted that, you know, you're on your own, these areas are not patrolled, mm-hmm. so therefore we don't really mark it on the map, because once you mark it on the map, it's considered a trail, and you wouldn't want to mm-hmm. have to... Um, have a, a huge ski patrol effort at the end of the day to sweep all those. It, it's impossible to ski all the you know, to sweep all the woods, you know. Yeah, is that another one of those pragmatic things where it's like, okay, we want a skier's mountain, uh, we want to keep the mountain growing, but we can't afford to double the size of our ski patrol. Let's just have these exist, but we're not going to necessarily draw attention to them. But they're there for the people who want that. that right. Benefit. Exactly. Exactly. Like out of bounds skiing, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, the mountain has, is tons of stuff for experts. Um, and it has a well-earned reputation as the toughest skiing in the Catskills. And when you, when you see it from uh, the top of Bel Air and you look across the valley, it, it just looks so intimidating. It's just elevator shafts, right? <laughs> yeah, um, the front five like that stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, and, and there, you know, you look down those and you, you better be ready because there's not a lot of bailouts. Um, Continuous vertical drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my daughter, who's 10 and not an expert skier by any means, um, she, you know, she can do blues. She loves Platykill. And, and part of it is 
those little mountain bike trails you were mentioning, those, they just loop forever. She, she just cannot get enough of the place. Um, how do you find that balance between being that expert skiers oasis and, and being a family mountain and letting people know that, that you have whatever they want there? Well, that's a difficult challenge. Um, so we've made this effort to really promote our beginner skiing because that's the the thought that was out there 10 years ago is that, you know, you better be good because it's a very difficult mountain if you decide to go to Platakill. But we've, we've made a, a very strong effort to market our beginner terrain, two-mile-long beginner trail on each side of each peak, coming off each peak, yeah. and and they're they're fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. We built our new learning center with a uh, conveyor lift on it, and uh, that's right off the triple chair. Great learning environment. But the biggest mm-hmm. thing I think we are pushing is that our novice trails, they're so long and are are so uncrowded. You know, mm-hmm. it's a great place to learn to ski. The nice thing about Platakill is you never stop getting better because the terrain keeps getting better. Um, So we can satisfy any family or any family that brings a guest family who's learning to ski. You know, we can give everybody a great experience. The experienced skiers don't get bored of the mountain. It's very easy to get bored at at feeder mountains. Um, So this mountain you're not going to get bored at. those members of the family and those members of the family that are, are beginners, they have a great place to learn in an uncrowded, unstressful environment. Being that I was a ski school director yeah. for nine years, I take, I, I pay very close attention and take the ski school to heart. I, I am, I'm directly in contact with the ski school director and the ski instructors all the time. And I really hope they're, uh, I, I make sure they're giving a great experience. Can you talk a little bit about the mountain rental program and, and what that's done for your business? I, I saw last year it was $4,500. I don't know if that has, you know, if you're, if that's amping up a little bit this year, but um, just talk a little bit about that program and, and how that's contributed to the growth in your business. Well, that has been great for us. Um, needless to say, the, the New York Times article was phenomenal. It, it totally put that program on the map. Before that, mm-hmm. unofficial networks put it out there the year before, and, and that did wonders for us. So mm-hmm. props to unofficial networks and, and the fact that they have such a huge following. But uh, New York Times really blew it wide open. Being that we are three hours or less from most New York metro areas, um, mm-hmm. we just filled up every available date. And we try really? to focus all of our groups on – uh, Mondays and Thursdays, so that they can really have extended weekends. Uh, mm-hmm. Most groups don't just come up for the day; they come up for the weekend. They rent hotels or Airbnbs or whatever, and they'll ski multiple days and then have their own private day. Um, it's it's done fantastic. the uh, The forty five hundred dollar cost covers the first two hundred and fifty people, and uh, every additional person after that, if it's a large group pays a nominal fee Uh, Mm -hmm. we open up the mountain full bore and uh, all services are open a la carte uh, from ski school to food and beverage to whatever or you know we can uh, cater these different things but what it's done for us in our business is ensure that we're opening up on a midweek day without 
losing money. Mm-hmm. You know, we are too small of a mountain to take a hit during the week and hope to make it up on the weekends. Um, we learned that very early on in 1993 when mm-hmm. we were operating as a seven-day operation. But uh, the next year when we had no snow, we were forced to go back to that three-day model, and, and we've been three days ever since. Then we started doing these powder days where it snowed a foot or more. Um, we'd open up the next day with no grooming to, to give that true Western-like experience, and that mm-hmm. was wildly successful. But the storms, you can't predict them. And uh, it, it all started out by a group of, of people that came up for a powder day, but it hadn't snowed a foot, and we didn't advertise it as a powder day. They just assumed we'd be open. Right. And, and they asked, what would it cost to open up the mountain? And at the time, it was $2,500 is what we came up with. And mm-hmm. the guy said, I'll gladly pay that. You know, it, it's a nominal cost for all of us, and uh, we'll have a great day. I said, all right, fair enough. Let's open up. Let's do it. And, wow. and that's how that's how the, the Rent the Mountains were essentially born. We said, hmm, now there's an idea. We could we could make a go of this. And uh, we started renting the mountain out, and we'd, we'd get half a dozen uh, groups that would rent. And then when the publicity made it out there uh, through unofficial networks and the New York Times, it just blew wide open. It was just it was mm-hmm. fantastic. And, uh, you know, now, now we open up, and even if it's a, a, a rainy northeast day where you might have 50 people in the parking lot and you're losing money, operating for the day because of all the labor and all the services that you have open and the grooming and operating the lifts. Now we know we're not losing money. Mm-hmm. And uh, we try to focus on Mondays and Thursdays, but we do have groups that like Wednesdays as well or Tuesdays. But, uh, you know, we need a couple of days off too. You know, mm-hmm. we try to try to give our – but it allow, allows us also to keep a full-time staff on versus mm-hmm. a very heavy part-time staff we had in the beginning. And believe it or not, a lot of these groups that come in and rent the mountain are people that have never even been to Platykill before. Oh, wow. So we're reaching sort of a whole new market that's just intrigued by the idea of having a whole entire ski mountain for yourself for the day, whether it's a corporation that loves it that's doing it as a corporate function or, you know, a corporate employee day um, or whether it's like a church or a youth organization or just a bunch of families that want to get together, celebrate, you know, a 50th birthday party, whatever it is, the idea is what's interesting people and they're really not thinking, well, what kind of mountain is this and how many trails Mm -hmm. do they have and what kind of snowmaking do you have? They're just like loving the fact that we offer this unique experience and so many of these people are booking because they just love the whole idea and when they actually get here, we we talk to them and we realize that they've never even been here before, so it's a pretty pretty unique concept. So you're filling up all your dates, which is great. And you mentioned the Powder Days program, um, where you open on a weekday if you get more than a foot of snow. Has that caused any conflict with the people who were used to the Powder Days? <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> it sure has. It sure has. And and it's it's the toughest thing we have to do is tell powder hounds that we're really, really sorry, but we can't open uh, today, even though we got all this new snow because we've got a private mountain rental. That private mountain rental made the commitment six months in advance when it was warm and sunny out and they were on the beach. They made the commitment for a day 
they they paid us for that day and how do we you know tell them hey we got to open up for a powder day because of of the powder hounds that that want to come ski here you know mm-hmm. so it it's there is some conflict but the conflict has somewhat been quelched by the fact that even the powder hounds know what it takes or they have an idea of what it takes financially to run a business like this when you're as small as we are and when you're mom and pop like we are and they understand that we need to make a certain amount of money to stay alive they don't want us mm-hmm. to go away either right. so they they will patiently wait for those powder days where we're not booked or it's on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or even on a weekend um, and they will come on those days. Um, so I, I think there's there's a mutual understanding of of the respect for the the hard work and uh, dedication that goes into to running a small business in this business that is now yeah, being definitely. gobbled up by the Goliaths. You know. Yep, I agree with that 100%. There might have been a little backlash at first when we first started the mountain rentals, um, but people realize that. It's just strictly business. It's just a matter of necessity that mm-hmm. we started this whole idea and it's been so successful for us that now those powder hounds are saying, we totally get it. You know, we're actually, we're happy for you guys. You know, so it's not so much about. You know, I, I will add one thing. We've had a couple of powder days on private mountain rentals and people mm-hmm. have showed up and we've asked the manager or the, the person organizing the private mountain rental We've we've asked them if they would mind if we had some powder hounds that Mm -hmm. would, you know, go skiing on their private mountain rental day. And we'll charge them a fee to use the mountain for the day, and it'll offset the mountain rental. And a couple of groups had no problem at all, and and it it, it worked out great. So, you know, there was a a happy ending to the whole thing. Yeah, because some mountain rentals actually rent the mountain as a fundraiser. So right. they're actually collecting money, you know, from the skiers that are participating in a specific, you know, ski rental day. So if that means 10 more skiers come that day and they charge them, it all goes to their cause. So it's depending on, you know, what the angle is of, you know, the organization of the people that have actually rented the mountain on a given day. Right. So you mentioned the Goliaths. I want to shift gears a little bit here. Uh, in July, Vale bought Peak Resorts, which means... Hunter Mountain will now be owned by Vale, so Vale will now be in your backyard. Very curious about your reaction to that news. Imagine that. <laughs> my, my my reaction is I thought they were going to buy I thought they were going to buy Wyndham first. <laughs> really? <laughs> I didn't think they would buy Peak Resorts, but uh, Peak Resorts stock was you know tanking, so it it only made sense that at an offer of twice the uh, face value of of what the stock was at would make sense for all outstanding shares. Um, you know, and, and I'm speaking with little knowledge of, of the financial markets and, and, and Wall Street, but um, you know, looking at it from the outside as a as a layperson, that's totally how I saw it. Um, you know, Vail was just making purchases that were way too big and it was uh, obvious they were saddled with huge debt and they had to get out. They or, or they would have to start divesting themselves of, of ski resorts to pay down debt. But I'll add to that, that's exactly what American Ski Company did. And you know, selling off ski resorts didn't work for them and they eventually went down in a ball of flames. Um 
So uh, the, the way I like to look at the Goliaths, I like to, I like to look at the Goliaths that I've outlasted, like American mm-hmm. Ski Company, you know, like right. the Hermitage Club, all these well-funded large corporations. Holy cow! And and I've outlasted them all. <laughs> so I, you know, that's a feather in our cap, and I I like to pat myself on the back for that, you know. And we're and we're doing it without the deep pockets and uh, Wall Street and the and the financial markets. Um, but yeah, Vale's in our backyard and, uh, I'm not worried. Um, what I, what I have found is that the niche that we have here, I feel has a path to both. They, they, they have our season passes, but they also own a, a Vale pass, an Epic pass or an Icon pass because mm-hmm. they go out West. You know, right. they they go out west. They go skiing uh, for one or two weeks a year with their families, and it's cheaper to buy that eight hundred and ninety nine dollar Epic Pass or whatever it costs these days. I think in the end, Vale's losing. You know, they yes, of course, they're getting the uh, the payout on the back end with uh, lodging costs and restaurants and shopping and whatnot. But you know, I, I think their pass is is way too cheap. But yeah. um, you know, they their goal is to sell a million of them. I understand they sell a million of them a year. You know, that's that's a nice nice income level, but they yeah. have to satisfy shareholders. But mm-hmm. they've been able to maintain their share share value. But will it will it affect us? I, I, I'm not worried. Um, a lot of the Vale Mountains have gotten too crowded because of the Epic Pass. It, it's it's given people accessibility to all these ski resorts that would have cost them in the past. But if they own a pass, you know. It's 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 a totally different experience, you know. Yeah, I don't know if Hunter can get more more crowded than it already is. <laughs> to be honest with you. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you're talking about 45 minute lift lines at times, you know. Yeah. And I think it's only a matter of time that Aspen's going to come around and grab Wyndham. You know, okay. that's that's how I see it. I mean, you know, this is now going on record because you're recording this, so <laughs> that's my <laughs> prediction. <laughs> and they're privately funded. You know, but look look what they've done with Stratton Mountain. Look what they've done with uh, buying Camelback in the Poconos. You know, they're Mm -hmm. they're giving value to that Icon Pass to compete with Vale. So it's just a matter of time, you know. And and I'm sure the investment group that owns Wyndham now, you know, sees the potential to to make some money and sell it down the road. And and Aspen's going to want to compete, you know. It it seems like a matter of time with with Vale having – put that stake down that close to New York city that, that Altera is going to want to, to get a chunk into. I'm surprised it took this long. I thought they would have come yeah. into New York much earlier. So this, yeah. this really surprises me. Yeah. Well, the, the max pass had, uh, Bel Air Gore and, uh, Whiteface on it. And then when they, when it switched to icon pass, they left those off. So I was a little surprised they didn't keep them, but, uh, you know, we'll see how it develops. Now Aspen is called Altera, right? Altera is the sort of umbrella group, and and uh, Aspen or KSL, I believe, is a major investor in Altera. It's a it's a little bit of a complicated structure, but uh, that's my understanding of it. So, but but Platykill is actually part of the Freedom Pass Alliance, uh, meaning your pass holders get three days at a bunch of member resorts like Magic in Vermont, Bolton. Valley, a bunch of other ones in the area, and then their pass holders get three days at yours. Can you take us into your decision to join that alliance? 
I we we really like the idea of that. And uh, what's great for the skier is that there's no cost to that. If you own a season pass at any one of those mountains, uh, you're able to use it three times at the other mountain. And, and it's great. Uh, the magic skier from New Jersey who can't make it up there on a powder day can come to Platykill, you know. And we've gotten a number of Vermont skiers to come down to us when a southern storm hits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's fair for everybody, you know, it, it's not a, a shared revenue model and figuring out all the logistics of that just doesn't make sense. But ultimately we want it to be good for the skiers because we are a skiers mountain and I'm not alienating snowboarders. Um, <laughs> it's skiers and <laughs> snowboarders, but we're just using skiers as a very general term. Um, yep. And and news on the news to hit the presses soon is that the Platykill Freedom Pass will now be accepted at Homewood Mountain in Lake Tahoe. So if any skiers are going on vacation to the California area to ski the Lake Tahoe Resort, you'll be able to go to Homewood free of charge. Incredible. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, that's a that's a nice uh, that's a nice development. And it was literally one indie mountain, one independent mountain reaching out to another and and really feeling the vibe and saying, "You know what? Your vibe's a lot like ours, you know. How would you like to do this, you know?" And and we we thought it was great. And and again, no cost to the skiers, no additional cost to the skiers. So there was recently the the Indy Pass came out, and that's two days at a bunch of different independent resorts. Did they approach you? They did. They did approach us. They did approach us, and and we declined to participate in that this year because we just didn't like the the model. Um, that's mm-hmm. again a shared revenue thing where they're paying out per lift ticket to the mountains, but the 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 price is severely discounted. And it, it just didn't make sense for us at this time. So we're just going to sit back and watch and see what happens with that. Yeah. And you, you can find Platykill tickets on Liftopia and some other places. So so there are... Yeah, there's, there's discounts out there. Exactly. Exactly. So and, and that discount would have been even more, would have been even greater. And right. uh, and, and look, the, the fact is, is that pass still costs skiers additional money. You know, yeah, and, and that's the part of it we didn't like. You know, we we didn't like the fact that there was a a fee involved, and and behind the scenes for the resorts, there's an even larger fee involved. So we we just it, it wasn't for us, not this year. Yeah, with Freedom Pass, it's just a simple model. Yeah. It's just like mm-hmm. independent ski mountains working with independent ski mountains, and we all agreed to agree to honor the three anytime tickets at any participating mountain, and every each mountain has a different way that they sort of keep track of that. Um, but it works for us, and it's, it truly is independent mountains working together. The, the original Indy Pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So where do, where do most of your pass holders come from then? I know, you, you know you've said you're a little bit further than the rest of the Catskills Resorts. So do you draw a lot of people from New York City? Is, is it more locals? Where does your, your core come from? I, I would say New York Metro. Mm-hmm. Yep. New York Metro. Island is also a very large market for right. us. Oh, Long Island, really? It's hard for us to to track exactly, but we have yeah. found that that most everybody is the New York metro area. Yeah, I, I'm in Brooklyn, and it's really easy to get there. I mean, if you leave the city um, early enough to get to the lifts, there's no traffic on weekends, so um, it, it totally makes sense. And, and the the rest, well, Wyndham and Hunter are, are zoos. Uh, Bel Air is not that crowded, but 
Uh, the experience at Platico is totally different. Um, but I did want to talk about Bel Air for a minute. Uh, I, I, I was really impressed with that New York ski blog post that you wrote several years ago now, um, speaking out against the advantages that Bel Air gets as your closest neighbor, as, as being a, a state-funded ski area. And you were talking in particular about the high mount uh, expansion and how much the state paid for that, which was some exorbitant number, like $55,000 an acre or something. It's close to 100000 an acre, but I don't wow. think that transaction has taken place yet. Okay. They were going to buy that, that's 78 acres, and they were going to pay $7 million for it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's That's taxpayer money. And that's right. the part I have a problem with. I've never been outspoken against the development over there. The, mm-hmm. the Catskills needs uh, a revival with a, a quality resort, a quality large resort with lots of, of rooms, and I've never spoken out against it. And, and they're, they're saying that that would have been like a half a billion, with a B, half a billion dollar development um, when it's all built and sold out. Um, they would have been in its own little town over there, but the the problem is is that they wanted um, the developer wanted the state to commit to close to a hundred million dollars of taxpayer money to build out Bel Air onto High Mount and to build additional trails, lifts, parking, and infrastructure to the front doors of all this new lodging, all this new hotels and condos and everything. And that's the that's the gray line of that public private partnership that I never agreed with. And and I felt it was done in a improper way. There was no public referendum on it. There was no discussion. There was one um public comment period where you can make public comments to the DEC, and and my comments, those were my comments that were put into print. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't believe the taxpayers should fund the expansion or development of a public facility to benefit a private developer. Um, And all the things that they hung their hat on, um, that it's employment, it's jobs, it's economic growth for the area, that would all happen if a private operator was in there the state shouldn't do it. So my argument has always been that if a private developer is willing to commit to half a billion dollars in development, they can add another $100 million onto it, build out the skiing themselves on High Mount, and then hand it over to the state to operate it. You know, But for the state taxpayer to fund this when, when there's still areas of New York that haven't been that haven't recovered from Hurricane Sandy down in the city and and the the number the limited number of population of New Yorkers that actually ski that don't even know that the state's in the recreation business uh, with Orda and and with another authority you know I don't feel is 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 the right thing to do you know especially because I'm paying into those taxes and Bel Air is exempt from all those taxes on every single purchase they make, you know, and they're exempt from property taxes and they're exempt. That whole place should be leased out. And if you ever look it up, look up the model of Mount Sunapee in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Now that lease, it was leased by the Muller family of Okimos, And now that lease was purchased by Vale, but 
That is a state-owned facility, the same size as Bel Air, that the state realized they cannot operate profitably, and it was losing the taxpayers tons of money, like Bel Air is to this day, like Orta is. You know, Orta operates in a major deficit. It's all public information. Um, that place was leased out. They put it up for lease, and the Mullers leased it, and that model would work at Bel Air impeccably. It would be perfect, you know. Mm -hmm. And then a private operator would be competing on a level playing field because they'd be making a payment in lieu of taxes because you can't tax state land. But they'd be making a payment in lieu of taxes as part of that lease, and then they'd be paying a percentage of gross revenues, you know. And it wouldn't cost the state anything then to operate these areas, you know. And, right. a, and, a, and a business like Vail or Aspen could come in and run those places perfectly, and I'd feel like I was competing on a level playing field even with a Goliath that size because they would have to operate profitably. But now to have a, a state facility there competing with me, you know, and, and competing with my lift ticket prices and competing with my season pass prices and not pricing the, the facilities, not pricing the, the tickets, um, commensurate with the improvements that they have in place and the infrastructure that they have in place, those tickets should be the same price as, as Hunter and Wyndham's, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and then they might be able to squeak out a profit. But no, they don't price any of their resorts like that. You know, they're priced way too low at a loss. You know, it's not benefiting the taxpayer. It's not benefiting the state. They're losing money on it. <laughs> yeah, it, the, those are big numbers. And, you know, 100 million. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's what Jay Peak might sell for. And, you know, High Mount is no Jay Peak. Exactly. In that article, in the New York Ski Blog article, and I realized it was a few years ago, so, so maybe your thinking has changed, but you proposed four things that would create a level playing field. State-backed interest-free loans for private areas to compete with state areas, um, an end to predatory lift ticket pricing, uh, joint marketing for Catskill ski areas, and a regulatory shift that would allow more development, such as infrastructure and sewer expansion. A, I guess, do you, are those still the fixes that you think are right? And B, have there been any movement on any of those things? There's been no movement on any of those things. And yes, I believe in those things, but I think ultimately... What makes the most sense is to lease out those places because I don't see any of the other things happening. Yeah. We, we, we got a, a grant last year uh, through NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority, to purchase energy-efficient snowmaking uh, mm -hmm. to make our snowmaking infrastructure more, um, you know, more efficient and to give us an opportunity to compete with the state ski areas on a level, on a more level playing field because they have, you know, huge money they dump into their ski resorts every year. Um, this year, Bel Air got 14 million in the state budget. But the fact is, is that the state skiers were allowed to get in on that grant too. So they were literally just passing money, earmarking money from one agency to another agency. When originally this was proposed, it was set up so that the private areas would only have access would have access to this so that they can have an opportunity to level out the playing field a little bit against the state facilities but they don't pair, they don't play nice they don't play fair you know i i and i just 
don't get it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it has to be frustrating. You know, subsidizing a new gondola for your uh, fourteen hundred vertical foot neighbor is <laughs> a little, little bit. And that, and that gondola was only there to appease the developer because the developer was making threats to you know cancel the whole project and uh, and pull the plug on it. So they said, well, we, we can't spend $100 million, but let's put $8 million towards the gondola, and let's put it as far over to the right side of the mountain as possible to show them we're serious about expanding onto, uh, onto High Mount. Well, that developer, as I predicted in my public comments, mm-hmm. uh, when I made my public comments, my prediction was that as soon as that developer gets his last permit approval, he's going to put the whole thing up for sale. Guess what happened? The whole thing is up for sale oh, wow. <laughs> right now, and and you could see it online. The whole wow. resort at Bel Air Mountain is up for sale. That developer is not going to develop a, a single thing, you know. Wow. It's all smoke and mirrors. Well, it it seems like uh, you're doing a pretty bang up job over there, keeping everything running at Platykill. Uh, the, the place has got a lot of great buzz around it. I, I know that. Your winter is extremely busy, but do you get a chance to get out and ski other places at all? Um, I do, but usually it happens at the end of the season. Okay. Where, where do you like to go? We, we try to choose a different part of the Northeast and spend a week um, so, you know, skiing somewhere. I haven't been out west since I bought the ski resort, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I've been invited many times, but it's just so hard to get away. You know, know you've got to be hands-on, and we are hands-on. But we've, uh, we've skied everywhere from uh, the main ski areas all the way up to Saddleback, which mm-hmm. unfortunately is now closed. And we've done yeah. uh, Vermont, northern Vermont, southern Vermont. We've done New Hampshire. We've... Uh, We've skied even uh, Western New York. We, we've we've been all over, uh, trying to get a, a taste and a flavor for everything that's out there, um, and it and it's really really been a, an enlightening experience. We like to, you know, get ideas and and find good ideas and like a like a wheel, throw some grease on it and make it spin a little bit better. If we see a good idea, if we see a bad idea. We definitely put it on our list not to copy that. <laughs> so do you try to hit the indies or do you do you hit the big guys too? just try to see everything, what the landscape looks like? I hit them all. We've been to Bolton Valley. We've been to, uh, to Mad River Glen. Um, and we've been to Stowe, uh, Saddleback. All the main ski areas is basically the yep. three big ones. Um, that was quite a while ago when Saddleback was still open. Sunday River, Sugarloaf. Um, we skied Sugarbush. Sugarbush, we really like. We really like what yeah. they've done there, even though they're very well funded. Um, we like the vibe they've created there. It's very mm-hmm. unique, and uh, I, I think it's only a matter of time before that gets gobbled up too. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely the biggest indie in the East, but it, it, you're right. It it does have that that feeling of of an independent resort. I um, mean, you know, it's also it's also very big, so. <laughs> It's very big and 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 very well funded. What, I, what I actually skied with Winsmith, and I asked. Oh, him did you? If uh, I, I I skied with him, I, I was his guest actually up there with my family. Nice. And um, I asked him, would he ever consider investing into another ski resort in the Northeast? You know, uh-huh. and the answer was an emphatic no. <laughs> <laughs> he just says, I want to try to figure out a way to get more skiers to ski at my resort. <laughs> yeah. 
but uh, but but I think the investment has paid off. You know, he he does believe in the philosophy, as do we. If you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to build it very carefully and very slowly and cautiously due to financial constraints. Yeah. Um, you know, he was able to do things at a much faster pace. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mold was set by Les Otten when Les Otten was there with the American Ski Company. Right. Um, you know, with some of his connections he made to Mount Ellen and stuff like that. But it's a cool resort. Um, we've skied Killington. Killington's fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I would I would consider Powder Corp the uh, the indie of the of the Goliath mergers. Right. <laughs> they're the smallest one, but uh, you know they're a good one. Yeah, and they're investing a ton in their mountains. And... They they own they own a resort out in Tahoe. They they mm-hmm. have well now they have uh, Snowbird, which is a big one. Um, and I know they lost Park City to uh, Vale due yep. to a contractual dispute, but uh, Powder Corp's a cool mountain. Cool mountain. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you can hit Killington October through June, and that's that's sort of the beauty of it is it's it's always there. Yeah, so. yeah. I spent some time there. So among everything you're doing, do, do you get a chance to get out and ski every day, take at least one run? Every day, every day. My My rule has been that if I have – just the smallest amount of time, a minimum of one run a day, because I am uh, very on top of the the product we are putting out, and uh, I want to know what's going on out there, and and I, I make it a point to ski every day, and never has it been just never has it been just one run. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I can only do that when I have very reliable staff running everything inside and around the mountain, and uh, and my wife does a very good job at that. So unfortunately, yeah. I don't think she can say the same. Danielle, <laughs> he's definitely got a leg up on me there. <laughs> She's great. So, She's great. I couldn't do I couldn't do this without her. She keeps me organized. So so open or closed, you're out there taking a run, seeing how it is all the time, every day. So before I let you go, let's say someone's listening to this they've never been to Platykill before. They're a, they can ski anything. They come to Platykill for the first time. Where do they go? Um, they, they come in the base lodge and uh, visit our guest services center. Our guest services center has our ski school, our rental shop. They can walk everybody through it, and uh, they'll get them on skis and out to the snow in no time at all without any stress or aggravation. Mm-hmm. And there will still be money in their pockets for a hamburger. Our hamburgers are still single digits. That's refreshing. Where do they ski when they get out there? You got you got an expert skier there for the first time. Where do you send them? Oh, we send them you know anywhere on the front five. The front five are are the best. You know, my favorite is free fall, and oddly enough, free fall does not have snowmaking on it yet, but uh, it's a very unique trail. It's got a great view from top to bottom on fall line. Uh, Blockbuster is steep and deep. We make the snow really deep on that trail. Uh, we groom half of it. Half of it, we allow it to get bumped up. And uh, and North Face is a a crowd pleaser, but I think everybody's favorite is Plunge, the the trail that's under the the double chairlift. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's always been been a favorite, and it was the first top to bottom vertical run built on this mountain back in 1961, I think it was. Wow. Yeah. And you always try to have some bumps on the mountain? Always try to have some bumps on the mountain. Yep. All right. Well, I really can't thank you enough for the time, Danielle and Laszlo. Um, 
And you know what I thought your last question was going to be? What? Laszlo, what would you say if Vail came knocking on your door? <laughs> well, why don't you answer that question? <laughs> I'm not going to answer that because you didn't oh, answer. Okay. We'll have to save that for the next blog. <laughs> we'll let everybody think about the answer to that one. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, I'll chase you down again then. Um, We're going to well, remain independent for life. Six grips for life. <laughs> that's what everyone wants to hear. I know. We love, we love what we do, and we love it that everybody loves what we do. Yeah, the Catskills wouldn't be the same without Platykill. Uh, really tremendous work you're doing over there. Uh, so keep it up. I will look forward to skiing there this winter, exploring some new glades, uh, see what you guys cut in. Um, so we'll just count down to count down to snow. Awesome, awesome. Okay. Thank, thank you for interviewing us, and a and a huge shout out goes out to our team because again, we wouldn't be what we are without our team and our leadership team that we have here. Incredible. All right, great. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, thank you. Danielle and Laszlo Vete, owners of Platykill Mountain. Skiing needs more people like them. Skiing needs more owners like them. How cool is their story? How cool is their mountain? If you haven't been to Platykill, go to Platykill. It is a must-ski if you're anywhere near the Catskills. Let me know what you thought of that interview. Go to Twitter, at StormSkiJournal. While you're there, tell me who else do you want to hear from on the storm? Tell you who you will hear from next. Jeremy Davis, founder of the New England Lost Ski Areas Project. If you're not familiar with this website, it is awesome. Jeremy has tremendous insight into the ski areas that we've lost over the decades. And I cannot wait to share that conversation with you. To get that as soon as it's available, subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm Stuart Winchester. I look forward to doing it again soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.